to episode 21 of our podcast. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. How are you, Lisa? I'm all right, thanks, Alex. See you. Do you know what? I'm actually starting to feel the effects of lockdown, but not in a negative way. I quite like not seeing anyone. Is that sick? <laughs> no, I absolutely get it. And I think I saw something the other day on an article saying that literally only 9% of people want life to go back to normal after this is over. Well, they haven't asked me. I definitely want my life to go back to normal. I'm just enjoying it right now. <laughs> and that, that's what I mean. I think it's. Um, I think people are going to view things very differently after not being able to go out for a long time. Speaking of not being able to go out, yeah, you mentioned something about our next guest and you actually called the episode the ultimate lockdown. It's so true. The ultimate lockdown like this could not have come at a better time so I met a lady through Facebook called Tessie Castillo I think that's how you say it I hope that's how you say it um and she is an author she's written several books but this particular book she's co-authored with four inmates who are serving uh, on death row they're, they're going to die on death row they're going to be executed and you know their, their crimes are serious crimes um, and we've actually interviewed one of those four co-authors called George Wilkerson and he's incarcerated for double homicide so it, it's very very serious what he's done but the reason that we've decided to interview him is because of the similarities and the relatability that he can bring to our podcast about getting sober it's just such an unusual thing for us to be able to do and I'm kind of like really excited that we've had the opportunity to do something like this I remember a very long time ago a friend of mine telling me that she had been accepted to write letters to somebody on death row and she was really excited about it now she put that on a Facebook and the response was really really interesting because there was a bunch of people that was like oh my god that would be amazing that would be so interesting and yet there was another response from people of like why would you want to do that yeah and I do think this will raise those kind of emotions this podcast there'll be a good number of people saying why would you even give this man the time of day he's done horrific things which he has but I think when people do listen to this they might actually see that he's travelled a journey like anyone else has. I'm not saying all's forgiven and it's all okay, you know, but people have to listen and make their mind up for themselves, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think I, for one, have always been one of them people that is really interested in, in something like this. So to have the opportunity, such a rare opportunity to actually get to speak to somebody inside the prison for me is just so interesting and I really hope that everybody else finds it as interesting as we did you know he's he's done some amazing things um and I think what people will be really surprised at and something that I was very surprised at is how much you actually relate to some of the things and I think it's kind of like oh my god and I you know I'm a big believer that anything can take a turn can't it it's just a moment just a moment and I think listening to him 
just it made me really emotional it made me feel weird I didn't understand my emotions afterwards I was I was kind of really sad I was happy I was it was just really unusual I thought after we'd spoke to him yeah I felt the same because like you've just said any you know you'd like to think that that's never going to happen to you and that you are the person that you know you would never do anything like that but when I heard about his upbringing oh the struggles that he'd had in life. And I'm not saying that everybody who has these struggles turns out to be, you know, a murderer and, and should end up on death row or whatever, but he, he didn't stand the chance, did he? No. He the chance. And I think that's where the, the sympathy and the empathy comes from, that he was never really given the right chance from day one. Ever. And I think it's, I just, I really look at, we can't say anything too much at the beginning because you no. really want to, like, We've not fully discussed it since we recorded it, so I can tell that we really want to talk about it. So without saying too much, you know, this guy is now an award-winning writer, an award-winning artist and a poet. Um, he's won a pen award for his essay, Limp Grey Fur. He was a finalist for the Cathy Smith Bowers Chatbook Contest and he's won a gold award in the Capitalising on Justice Art Competition um, he's also been an editor for Compassion, which is a newsletter for people on death row. And I think, you know, when you listen to him and when you talk to him, and even at the end of our podcast, I don't think even he realises exactly what he's accomplished. And his book, do you want us to tell them? No, 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 go on, because I don't exactly know what you're going to say. <laughs> This book has now been oh yes, yeah, the band yeah from the prison. Yeah, it's been banned not only from that any correctional facility in North Carolina. We've literally just found that out that it's it, it was released in March twentieth of March, and it's been confiscated from the four co-authors on death row and banned because it poses a threat to the the um, jurisdiction there or the correctional services there. I don't know exactly the wording um, on that, but yeah, it's been it's, it's been taken down and put in the category of banned in North Carolina correctional facilities. So, yeah, um, it's a shame. George is never going to get to hear this podcast, I don't think. Um, he did record it. And I guess, yeah, listen to us dial in. <laughs> Here it goes. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from George Wilkerson, an inmate at Central Prison. This call will be monitored and recorded for customer assistance. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hello. Hi, George. I'm Alex. Um, thank you so much for being on our podcast to share your amazing story. And we honestly feel really privileged to get to speak to you. Um, your transition reading the chapter of the book is one of the biggest that we've seen. Hi, George. This is Lisa. I'm hoping that you'll be able to recognise our different voices as we go through this. <laughs> um, but I agree. I'm so pleased that you know that you can share your story with us. It's it's madness for this, but we've been really looking forward to speaking with you. Um, we know now that you're an award-winning writer, an artist, and a poet. Um, and we know through the book that you've, the one that you've co-authored with Tess, but for those that haven't read the book yet, I'm just halfway through your story, actually. Um, can you give us a bit about your backstory? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. No problem. <coughs> well, 
my mom is Korean and my dad is uh, white American. And so when he was in the military back in the 70s and 80s, he met my mom over in Korea while he was stationed there. They got married, um, had us kids, four of us boys, and moved back to the States. And um, my dad was um, paranoid schizophrenic, but we didn't know it uh, back then. So like it started setting in, the symptoms started uh, expressing themselves, and he started just kind of losing it. And, uh, my parents got divorced and uh, became really combative toward one another like enemies. And so they started trying to make us kids pick and choose between them. And, um, you know, it kind of grew pretty violent in the home as my dad sort of degenerated. Uh, and then when I was six or so, uh, my dad had tried to thaw the pipes out in the winter because they had frozen and caught our trailer on fire, uh, burned down our home. So we were homeless, uh, four boys age uh, four, five, six, and eight years old. And, and uh, being homeless sort of threw us into uh, on the welfare and put us in the, what we call the projects over here. So like low, low rent apartments that were subsidized by the state. And when we moved into those apartments, uh, that complex, it was, um, we were the only non-black family that was in that complex at that time. And, so we experienced a lot of racism and violence and just, it was a whole different world. And it, it, crime was rampant, drug use was everywhere. And so I kind of had my little coming of age years uh, in that culture. And I got involved in crime and drug use and fighting. And it just, one thing led to another that, and it ultimately culminated with me uh, coming to prison back in 2005, uh, charged with two counts of Harder. George, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. I just wanted to know a little bit about your very first encounter with the law. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I, my first real encounter uh, with the law was actually the time that I reached out to the law for help. Because uh, like I said, I grew up in that, that neighborhood uh, where crime was rampant. So, you know, the police were always present and you know, trying to do drive-throughs and, you know, scare people and try to run drug dealers off the corners and stuff like that. But those weren't really encounters because, you know, they were sort of distant. Uh, we were running from them. Um, but you definitely didn't try to interact with the police. Um, but one time I did, and it was uh, one night when I was 12 years old, and I remember I said my dad was schizophrenic and really abusive and um, he would just explode in rage uh, over just random things. We just never knew what might trigger my dad. Things that you would think would trigger a person's anger didn't trigger my dad's anger, but other things that you didn't think should trigger anger would. For example, um, if I if he caught me smoking a cigarette, this before he knew I smoked as well. But when he called it smoking, uh, he didn't even he didn't get mad at about. Uh, smoking cigarettes or sneaking cigarettes or stealing cigarettes. Um, but if I went to set my drink on the table and spilled it on accident, he might just fly into a rage and beat me half to death for spilling my drink. Um, so it just was really unpredictable. And then the next time I spilled my drink, he might not say anything at all about it. So it just, like I said, it was just really inconsistent and unpredictable. 
and I don't remember what it was exactly, but one night I triggered my dad's rage, and uh, he just became murderous almost instantly. And um, he picked me up by my throat and was literally choking the life out of me. My feet were not even on the ground. He just held me up in the air, choked me. And um, my older brother, Michael, who was 14 at that time, uh, just looked at me, and I was sort of begging him with my eyes to just do something to help me. Uh, Michael started crying and screaming. He just rushed our dad and attacked our father. And uh, my dad dropped me. And him and Michael started fighting. And Michael just looked at me and just told me to run. And so I'm, you know, I'm crying and I take off running barefoot out of the apartment. And uh, my friend lived in an apartment down the street, so I ran all the way to his house. And I'm, you know, incoherent uh, while I'm sobbing, trying to relate the story about how my dad just tried to kill me. And uh, his mom, my friend's mom, is telling me, she's like, look, George, you know, you can't you can't stay there with your dad anymore. He's going to kill you because he was sort of infamous uh, in my neighborhood. I mean, in my neighborhood, all the parents beat their kids, but, like, everyone knew how bad our beatings were. Like, we walked around with bruises on our arms and on our backs and, you know, broken bones. So people... They didn't really get involved. People might have their own business, but they knew that our dad was pretty vicious. So she was telling me, she was like, you can't go back to your dad. You've got to get some help. You've got to call the police. And that was taboo. There, you just never called the police on anyone. So, you know, for her to tell me to call the police was a, was a big thing. And so uh, she convinced me that I called uh, the emergency service number, which is 911 over here in the state. I told them what happened. That they sent a, a couple officers over to rescue me, basically. So the officers picked me up, and I told them my story about what had happened, and they took me back up to my apartment to confront my dad. Um, and my dad is standing out there on the porch. Uh, and the officers, I mean, they were really nice to me, and uh, really seemed to be genuinely sympathetic. Uh, it was a white officer and, and a black officer. And so they escorted me up there to the porch uh, to face my dad. And there was an officer on either side of me, one on my left, one on my right. And one of them had his hand on my back to like comfort me while I related to what had just happened that evening. And so they confronted my dad with that testimony. And my dad just, he admitted it right there in front of the officer. He said, yeah, I did it. I did all of it. You know, because I had related the years of abuse. And the officer just looked at me and he looked at my dad um, and he just pushed me back toward my dad and told me, he said, well, you must have done something to deserve it. My dad just smirked, stepped out of the way and I just, I went into the apartment and the officers left. Uh, They didn't arrest my dad. They didn't do anything to help me. They just shoved me right back into the lion's den, uh, so to speak. Uh, After that night, anytime my dad was not every time, but sometimes when my dad was about to beat me or right after he just got done beating me, he would drag me into the kitchen either by the back of my neck or he'd grab my ear and drag me into the kitchen where the phone was. And he would pick up the phone and he would dial the emergency services number or the child protective services number and he would shove the phone in my ear and say, here, call for help. And I would just look at him and I would take the phone and I would hang it back up in his cradle because I knew that there was no help that was going to come that way from that direction. So I just really lost all faith in 
the police or the law uh, after that night. And I'm not surprised. That's just the emotions that raises in me. It infuriates me. It's, you know, just I can't even begin to imagine how that must have made you feel and growing up with that. I really, really can't. Hopeless is, I guess, the one word that just comes to mind. I just really felt trapped and hopeless. I just, yeah, it's just mind-blowing to think that, you know, that that was your childhood and it just makes me furious and really sad. It just raises so many emotions. Did alcohol and drugs play a particular part, alcohol and or drugs, I should say, play any particular part in the... The double murder. Uh, well, this is something I've been writing about for the past seven years is trying to untangle exactly all these different factors and how they played a role in shaping me and, and still continue to play a role in shaping me and just helping me to see the world in a, in a different light. That's what writing is done. But with the drugs, like I said, I got into the drugs pretty early on. Uh, started at 11 or 12 years old, and just uh, it was just so common uh, around there. It was just it was normal. So, you know, I was pretty heavy into the selling and doing it. Uh, just a bunch of different drugs, and was addicted early on, and I struggled with addiction uh, ever since. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely shaped just the way that I saw the world, the way I engaged the world. Uh, it shaped uh, my decision-making uh, and my responses to everything. Uh, the people I hung around, uh, just everything in some way was connected to either drug use or drug selling or something. It was just it was as much a part of my life as eating or taking showers or drinking water. So, yeah, it definitely had a huge impact on me. It was just your normal, wasn't it? Which is um, really interesting. I think me and Alex often talk. So we run something called the Sober Experiment and we both chose sobriety. And I think when you make that decision yourself, it's kind of straightforward and easy. But whereas with you, your sobriety was more forced upon you. You know, it wasn't an actual choice as such. Um, I know you know, like known as a bit of a spiritual leader in the prison. Can you talk us through what getting sober was actually like for you in your situation and tell us about how you coped with it? What was your coping strategies? Oh, okay. Well, um, when I first got arrested and I was at the county jail, I was still uh, doing drugs because they would come in, you know, they would get smuggled in, it'd be contraband and I, you know, I was doing different drugs than I did out in the world because in here uh, it's more pharmaceuticals because guys get prescriptions and pills were easier to smuggle and all that. So when I got arrested, um, I'm being spiritual. I knew that my struggle was spiritual in nature. I've always believed in God, although I wasn't uh, a follower. I wasn't always seeking God. Uh, I was seeking something else. Maybe like just the powers that, or the miracles that were associated with God. But uh, once I started becoming more serious um, and trying to be true to who I am and who I believe God wants me to be, uh, I recognized that 
the way that I was in the past wasn't working. Like me trying to do it my way wasn't working. Um, so, uh, you know, I was so immersed in drug culture, even in prison, that um, part of the struggle, I think, was trying to separate myself from people. So that was like a key factor. But the problem with being in prison is that you can't really separate from people because you're like all, all around, you know, you're always around them. You're stuck on the same pod with them. Um, so I would, I would have to literally face problems that before, you know, out in the world, I could just run away from out in the world. I could just avoid the person or not call them anymore or, or, you know, whatever, move to another town. But in here, I couldn't do that. So in here, <clears throat> I was forced to confront my problems head on. Um, and I think that's really when I started becoming a man. In my eyes, the way I understand being a man, I think up to then I was just really immature and I didn't know how to handle problems. Um, and, you know, I've encountered so many obstacles and, and dangerous territory along the way. But, um, you know, the first step I think was I had made that decision that I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I had promised myself. I had promised God. I had promised my family because I knew that drugs was one of the major factors that led to me coming to prison, uh, you know, just being involved in that culture. So, you know, I had to I just really struggle with saying no to people and being rejected by people because in here it's the dominant culture. So it's like, I'm the weird guy. Uh, you know, I'm the, the guy everyone's saying is holier than now or acting holier than now or, um, you know, I've got a lot of criticism and just, you know, snide remarks people saying things like, oh, well, uh, you know, you weren't doing that when you were on the streets. Why are you trying to do it now? You know, now you're on death row and they're going to execute you. Like, what's the point? So I just had to wrestle with just all these self-doubts, all the criticisms of people around me. And, you know, that was the, the hugest part of it. And, you know, being sober now, it's like the world was just really strange uh, because I had been high for so long uh, that it was my normal. So now, like being sober, I felt like I was high, so to speak. I felt intoxicated, and um, you know, my thoughts would clarify uh, because they weren't muddled by drugs in my system. So I was starting to think uh, about things a lot that I before would just run away from or cover over with the drugs. Um, yeah, it's just been a huge battle on so many levels. Uh, I'm just scratching the surface there to hope maybe um, that would give you some something to grab onto and maybe focus in on a certain aspect of that, if you'd like. I find that absolutely intriguing because whether you're inside, whether you're outside, it seems to be a really common theme. Um, I, my childhood was like a fairy tale compared to what you've just described, but I would say I had a difficult childhood. And one of the things that happened after I chose to get sober was all of a sudden these memories came flooding back of things I'd done, of things other people had done, of things I'd said and, and they'd said and actions I'd taken and lots of regret, lots of um, shame attached to that. And it's quite interesting to hear that, you know, you've gone through this whole process and really never known any different. I'm interested, actually, just just something that's popped in my head. Did you ever try to get clean and sober before on the outside? I did. Um, when I was out, like this was 2005 when I caught this charge right here, but back in 2000, the year 2000, uh, I had just gotten out of jail in uh, April of 2000. 
and I met this girl when I got out. We, she was 19 and I was 19 and she came from a, a Christian background and I didn't, you know, I came from a non-religious background, but uh, we were together for a couple of years and we were really heavy into experimentation with drugs, a lot of cocaine and LSD and stuff like that, ecstasy and uh, magic, what we call magic mushrooms or psilocybin. So um, I remember uh, we used to go to her parents' house a lot because they were a close-knit family and, and her mom would see us smoking cigarettes and stuff. And, you know, she didn't, her parents didn't know anything about our drug use, but she saw our addiction to cigarettes. And I remember her mom telling me the story one day about how before she... You have 60 seconds remaining. Okay, I'm going to call right back. That way I don't um, have to interrupt the story. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Hello. Hey, George. Hey. Hi, George. Okay. I'm, uh, hey, greetings. Let me uh, pick this story back up. So, uh, like I was saying, I was uh, I had this girlfriend, and her parents were, you know, deeply immersed in Christianity. Went to church every week. But her mom would tell us, had told us this story, um, and she, you know, would always bug us to quit smoking cigarettes. And you know, we were trying to quit, but we were really addicted to cigarettes, just like we were to different drugs. Um, but her mom told us a story and she said that before she became a Christian that she used to smoke cigarettes too and I just really couldn't picture it that she was just such, I don't know, just so straight-laced at this point um, that I knew her. But um, she said that when she became a Christian, uh, she prayed that God would just take the craving from her because she had tried to quit smoking cigarettes and she couldn't. She had tried so many times. And, just, and when she prayed, for God to take the craving for cigarettes away from her, instantly he did. And it was just like that. Like she just put down the cigarettes and never desired them again and didn't struggle with it or anything like that. And I was kind of blown away by it. And generally I would like question that right there, but I had had some experiences with her parents. And I was like, you know, she had no reason to lie and she was just so sincere. And I was kind of amazed by that. And I had seen um, growing up in the neighborhood that I was in, uh, people addicted to crack. Um, when a person gets addicted to crack, in my neighborhood, generally, they never quit. They would do it until the day they die, literally. But I had seen uh, two people um, just overnight quit smoking crack, cocaine, and uh, both of them said that they had gotten saved and God had delivered them from it. So that was, you know, three different people that I had heard share that sort of uh, testimony or witness to the power of God. So. With his girlfriend, um, you know, we had experimented with cocaine, like I said, and uh, had some bad experiences with it and tried to quit. But um, one night, uh, this is two separate occasions, actually, this happened, but uh, we had been doing cocaine probably for about four weeks. So we were, like, strung out, like you would think people were strung out, but uh, it started off that we were in control of it, but for about a week there, we realized we kept saying we weren't going to do any more coke, but then we kept buying more coke. So we yeah. recognized that we might be becoming addicted to it. So one night we were in the middle of doing coke, so we had spent hundreds of dollars on this pile of cocaine. And um, about midway through, we just, we weren't even enjoying it. We were just having bad feelings and, you know, we were crying and, you know, ashamed that we were addicted to it. And it's like just there was this moment where we both heard God speaking to us and telling us that if we would ask him that he would deliver us from the cocaine. 
and we thought we were hallucinating, but we both heard it, and you know, we both confirmed it, and we just really sensed that God told us that if if we took a step out in faith, that He would deliver us from it. But what we had to do was take the cocaine that we had left right then, you know, worth hundreds of dollars, and flush it down the toilet. We couldn't take another line and try to put. We had to step right then out on what He was asking us to do and do that. So we looked at each other and we both agreed that we did not want to do cocaine and and that we were powerless to quit on our own. So we took the coke and flushed it down the toilet. Now that night it was bad. I mean, you know, we were coming down and crashing from the coke. And it's not that we didn't have the cravings for a couple of weeks afterwards, but we had the power all of a sudden to say no and stick to it. Like before we would say no and, and we would we would give in and we would go get it, but then after that night, we would say no and stick to it. But about a couple months later, we had a, a one-night relapse where we thought that we had conquered coke and, you know, we could try it again. And about halfway through that night, we experienced the same thing. We realized that, um, you know, we couldn't do it at all. We couldn't do it once a month or once every couple of weeks. Right? We had to just, you know, God was telling us completely. And so we had that same experience again uh, that night. Uh, so we, you know, I had those experiences while I was out in the world, uh, but I was still doing all those other drugs, uh, the LSD and the marijuana and, you know, smoking cigarettes, and I wasn't really a drinker, but, uh, so I was still doing all those other things, but they weren't, I didn't think they were dominating me like, like the cocaine was, uh, but I was so immersed in that culture and, I, you know, I was trying to get away from the, that lifestyle and I couldn't. So like when I was trying to do it on my own, I just I just couldn't do it. Uh, but when I came to prison, when I got arrested, I remembered those those two different approaches to trying to conquer my drug addiction. The nights that you know the, the things that I had heard other people witnessed about God delivering them from crack and cigarettes, and my own two personal encounters with God delivering me and my girlfriend from cocaine, and then you know, the years that I struggled with trying to quit all those other things on my own. Uh, and I couldn't, I failed. The only times that I saw anyone conquer it or even in my own life was when God was involved in it. So you, so obviously when you were in inside and you were on death row and you've kind of decided that this is it, you're going to go sober, you've used the spirituality and God to help you through that as well. Is that right? Yes, yes, I still had all those uh, struggles around me like I was like I was describing, but when I came here uh, and decided, you know, came to the point where I was really going to try to do what I believe God wanted me to do and keep the promise that I had kept, uh, that I had made to myself and my family and to God, you know, I didn't, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. I knew that I was going to have all these, well, I didn't know exactly all the struggles I was going to have, but I knew some of the struggles I was going to have. And I just prayed. I was like, God, you know, I can't do this on my own. I know I can't. You know I can't. So you're going to have to give me the strength. You're going to have to just empower me to do this. And uh, when it came to the drug aspect, it was almost overnight. Like I just, I just didn't desire them anymore, generally speaking. Uh, There were a few times uh, where... I was like, you know what, I, I can do this. Let me try this. Just, I kind of gave in. And when I did, I just did not enjoy it at all. Like all the pleasure 
that had formerly been in it was it just was not there. I just didn't enjoy it even a little bit. And so God did that for me. He made it so distasteful to me and so unpleasant when I did it that I just, I don't crave it anymore. So honestly, the hardest struggle uh, was with quitting smoking cigarettes. Um, the drugs themselves, after a couple of years of being here, um, you know, the temptation wasn't even there for the drugs, but uh, we had cigarettes for years and I had been smoking cigarettes since I was 11, and honestly, it was hard to quit smoking cigarettes than it was to give up cocaine. You know, it's weird that you say that, because uh, since going sober, my mum's actually gone sober as well alongside me. She's um, been sober 18, 19 months now, but she still says to this day that she really struggles with cigarettes because she stopped smoking around the same time, and that's the one thing that she struggles with. And it's just so fascinating to hear you go through things where you are that people are going through on the outside as well when they choose to stop drinking. You know, it takes so much strength to do what you've done and to stop the drugs and to stop the smoking. I just think it's... And and people even outside think that we're strange, don't they, Alex? When, yeah, definitely. You know, when we tell people we don't drink, we don't smoke, they're like, they think it's weird. So I can't even imagine how you dealt with that, being in your situation. How did you deal with it when people were saying, like, that's weird? I'm still dealing with it um, because it was... How do I explain? Like, there's some people who their whole lives, they, they are generally just upstanding people. I mean, they, they seem to do everything right. They have one or two areas that they struggle with in their life. You know, they just say they, they struggle with smoking cigarettes. And they're like, man, if I could just quit doing that, you know, the rest of my life would pretty much be in order. But with me, it was like the opposite. It was like 99 things out of 100 were just really screwed up in my life. And I had maybe one area that was okay. And this is, and I mean, just on so many levels, like just the way that I thought, my values, the way that I defined everything, uh, my uh, formulate responses to life. Like I grew up in a culture where if someone insults you, like you have to fight. I mean, I did, there were just so many attitudes, and behaviors, and thought patterns, and just emotion. Everything was just all tangled up. So being in prison also sort of like intensifies that because. Uh, you know, these people grew up, generally speaking, in the same way that I grew up, they have the same values. Uh, so it's just everything was just magnified. Um, and so um, struggling with the social aspect of it was really difficult because uh, I feel alienated in some mm-hmm. ways. I think since I've been consistent, uh, people are starting to see me differently and actually respect, uh, you know, what I'm doing. They see I'm not just being... I'm not just pretending. I'm not just being what you call a, a jailhouse Christian um, because I have nothing to gain here. You know, unless God works a miracle, uh, I'm going to die here. So it's not like I'm going to get relief in my case uh, legally or I'm not going to be rewarded in any way. So I have no other reason to do uh, what I'm doing unless I'm sincere. You know, there's no one that's going to praise me or pat me on the back or give me anything or, you know, I'm, I just... There's nothing to gain from it. I'm actually making my life more difficult uh, by trying to do what God wants me to do. Um, so I still struggle with it in, in a lot of ways. Um, but really, I would just 
it was a moment by moment thing, uh, you know, decision by decision, just when each situation would arise, uh, you know, I might have, like someone might make a comment and insult me. I'm like, okay, um, from my old way and from the way that people carry themselves in here, I'm supposed to react a very specific way. And so I would pray about it. I remember the first time it happened, uh, someone said something and I was just, and they said it in front of everyone else too. And I was in a rage. And, and um, I think what saved me was it happened to be count time at the time. So uh, we didn't have a chance to fight. And so we had to go lock in ourselves for an hour. And so during that time, I'm praying to God. I'm like, God, you know, you know how I have to respond to this. And you're telling me to go a different way. You know how everyone's going to think about me. They're going to think I'm weak or whatever. You know, I just wrestled with that. And I was praying. I was like, God, you know, if you want me to turn the other cheek, so to speak, the only way I can do that is forgive this guy is if he apologizes for what he said. And this is not one of those guys who are known to apologize. In fact, I've never known him to apologize about anything uh, that he said or did uh, since I've known him. And so I'm really asking God for a miracle. Uh, and I'm like, God, you know, this is the only way. If, if this guy doesn't apologize, it's only one response to this. You know, I have to fight this guy. Uh, I have to, or no one's going to respect me. They're going to think I'm weak, and, you know, other people are going to try to prey on me. Uh, but as soon as the door's open for count, uh, the guy popped up in my doorway. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm just tore up, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm angry and I'm, you know, I feel humiliated and wrestling with God and this guy just starts apologizing. He's like, man, you know, I'm sorry for what I said. I was in the wrong and, you know, and it just, it just took all the air out of me because to me, I was witnessing a miracle on the scale of watching the Red Sea part because I knew that this guy was not one to apologize. Like it, it can only be God that can move in this guy. To move him to apologize like that. So, you know, I just saw the scripture come to life where God says, uh, for him whose ways are pleasing to him, to God, uh, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And so I had known that scripture uh, and I saw that, uh, you know, according to the way to the world, there are certain ways that the world works. Uh, but when God gets involved in it, it's like this X factor comes into play and new things start to happen. Things out of the ordinary can occur. Uh, and so I saw that gave me the courage to do what God wants me to do uh, because I know that with him, um, things are not necessarily going to work out the way that you would think it would according to the ways of the world. I just wanted to add something on to the end of that to ask you one more thing. Um, the... The inmates alongside you or the guards or any kind of support groups, did you get any help from like people in there at all along your journey or was it all yourself and God? Well, there are no uh, groups in here like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. Uh, mostly it was just God and me, just my personal journey. but. Um, back in 2009, I think, 2000, I can't remember the date off my mind, but I started going to church, um, you know, and going to Bible study. And although it's not a 
support group. Um, you know, I, I just felt connected to the church community and uh, the Christian guys would see my struggles. And, you know, we all just were aware of how difficult it is to be a Christian in this in this context uh, because the, the, the values that God establishes in Scripture are many ways completely opposite of the values that most prisoners carry the way of the world. I mean, we, we all know that, but some things kind of align uh, behaviorally, uh, like respect, for example, you know, that's a big value in prison, but it's also a value that God is, that God teaches us. So like when it comes to respect, it's like, you know, it doesn't violate my, my religion to respect people like actually you know i'm supposed to respect everybody um so that kind of like you know aligns with the prison values but there are other values that are completely contradictory but just being in church like that um you know no being aware of one of the struggles we would encourage each other and sort of like you know praise each other when we recognize one of us handling a situation appropriately uh because Part of my struggle was that feeling of alienation and ostracism, like feeling like I'm being kicked out of the group uh, because I'm trying to live in a certain kind of way. But when I started going to church and, you know, realized, you know what, this is my new family. This is my new community. This is my new group. This is my new identity. Although there are only two or three Christians on each pod uh, here, those were two or three that, that were on my pod. Uh, and, you know, we would go to church together. And so, like, we would witness the way that we lived. Because, uh, you know, it's weird, like, when you're out in the world and you're going to church with people, unless they're your family, uh, you really don't see how they live every day. You just see them for that little period of time that you're in church. But in here, we go to church together, but then we come back to the pod together and we see each other 23 hours, 24 hours a day, you know, except for the time for ourselves. But we see how we each live. We see the comments that we make and the testimonies that we share while we're in church, but we also come back to the pod and see the reality of our behavior. So that's one of the main struggles, but, um, you know, people might see a situation arise that I'm caught in, and we all know how a person typically would handle it in prison. Uh, but if I or one of them handled it according to the Bible, uh, we got into the habit of encouraging each other or counseling each other from that perspective, like saying, hey, you know, I know that other guys are going to tell you that you ought to fight this guy, but, but God says this is how you should handle it. So don't just go fight the guy, rather go try to talk to him and try to be gentle or respectful or whatever. You know, we would counsel each other from a biblical perspective as to how we should handle a situation. But just having someone recognize that, hey, I'm not actually, I'm not being weak by not fighting. I'm trying to actually be strong and do what God wants me to do. That's why I'm not fighting. It's not that I can't fight. It's not that I'm afraid to fight. It's that God says it's wrong, and fighting was my always my first response, and that's also one of the reasons why I'm in prison now. So I recognize it's not the right way to handle the situation. You know, and just being part of a community, a church community like that now where we could kind of encourage each other and counsel each other from the angle just really helps strengthen me. And I think it helps strengthen the other guys in here and motivate us to do the right thing. From reading your story, George, that's something I suppose that you've 
you've never really had that community or then people around you growing up or ever through your life you was taught to fight from such a young age wasn't you I just think your story is so and people will be surprised at this but it's so actually relatable and I think people will relate to your story a lot more than they expect to mm-hmm. I really I'm really looking forward to people picking up this book and reading the story um, and you know finding out about you but can you tell us a bit about about the book and meeting Tess and what's all that done for you? Did you ever think that you'd be an award-winning writer? No, definitely not. Uh, I've never really been good at anything uh, in my life except for the wrong things, uh, which I think was part of one of the things that reinforced my criminal lifestyle was that mostly I was pretty good at it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in prison now, but I got away with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it's just one of the things I was good at uh, was art, though. Uh, and that's a healthy thing to be good at. Uh, and I had, you know, gotten into art when I was five years old. Uh, and so I became pretty good at that over the years. And when I got here, it was, you know, I really tried to cultivate that my artistic ability. Uh, so I had no desire to write at all. No poetry, no writing. I just wasn't interested in it at all. Uh, but about the 2000, 2013, summer of 2013, they um, put out a memo and advertised a class here uh, on Death Row. We never had classes, but the class was for a writing class. And um, it was called, or it was um, Writing from Captivity. So it would focus on reading the writings of authors who were in captivity in some form when they wrote whatever it is that they wrote, whether that be someone like Paul from the Bible writing from a little dungeon or Martin Luther King writing letters from a jail cell or just throughout history, different people who had written um, compelling stories that continue to impact the world today, but they wrote those stories from a place of incarceration. And so it just really showed us the power of writing. But I had no interest in taking that writing class, actually. But I just really sensed God kept bringing it to my mind. And, uh, you know, and I was arguing with God. I was like, why do I keep thinking about this writing class? I don't want to write. But I just really sensed God um, putting it on me to, like, just sign up for this writing class. So I signed up for it, not really knowing what I was going to get into. And, um, you know, just when I went out there to the class and was hearing these stories. It was like I just had this epiphany, like God just opened my eyes, like, look, you know, you're in prison, but you're not powerless. Uh, And I remember thinking at one time, you know, what can I do? What can I possibly do from from prison like this? And I was actually real suicidal uh, for many years. And so I was actually contemplating suicide uh, at the time I had this train of thought. And I was just really depressed and thinking, you know, my life is over. It's ruined. Uh, I'm just a waste of space. Um, And God asked me a question. He broke into my thoughts and asked me. He said, if Jesus were where you are right now, literally, on death row, and he was under the same restrictions that you are, uh, what could he accomplish from there? 
And, you know, the answer was self-evident to me. I said, well, you know, there's nothing Jesus could accomplish. What could he accomplish? Because Jesus had that faith, you know, and his power came from his faith in God, his obedience to God. It was God who operated through Jesus to empower to do all the miraculous things that he did. And God said to me, he said, so it is with you and all my children. All of us have that same spirit. Christians have that same spirit of God in us. And all of us have access to that same power of God. If we just obey, if we just have faith. And so it's like you just told me, it's like, you know, there's nothing that God can't accomplish in me and through me. No matter where I am, whether I'm in a prison cell or where I'm in, whether I'm in a dungeon like Paul, uh, it doesn't matter because he's the one who's in control. He can open doorways. He can give me abilities I didn't have before. And so when he connected that with like the writing for Paul, for example, I keep coming back to him. But Paul's writings are scripture. And so many millions and billions of people have read the scripture for thousands of years. They have read Paul's writings and continue to be influenced by Paul's writing. I am influenced by the writings of Paul in scripture. I study you know, the book of Romans and Corinthians, and stuff, you know, and I, and I shape, you know, God shapes my life around those texts. And I'm like, and God is telling me, he's like, you know, maybe he'll give me a word that I'm supposed to write down. And that will also shape people. I don't know. You know, I don't know what God's going to do, but just having that moment of understanding that uh, it doesn't matter what restrictions I'm under, that God can accomplish anything through me if it's his will. It just, it just really opened my mind. Um, and change the way that I engage the world. So I now I have this attitude where all I have to do is just do what God tells me to do. If He accomplishes something in me and through me, that's up to Him. I'm not, I'm not in control of the results. Uh, all I have to do is just obey. So that's the attitude that I try to maintain today in this context. So, do you enjoy writing now? Oh, yes, that was the shocking thing. It's um, when I took that writing class. I remember we had this, um, this poetry workshop. And um, and uh, with the poetry, there was just this moment in there where I just fell in love with poetry. And so I just enjoyed reading it and writing it. And then uh, I just, I don't know, the same way that God made drugs distasteful and unpleasant for me, uh, He made writing is really enjoyable to me. I don't know if something happens to me whenever I'm writing, when I'm working on a piece of creative writing, like, I don't know, it's just really pleasant. I mean, it's just one of the most enjoyable experiences uh, that I have, and it just enriches my life in, on so many, in so many ways to be able to write. So yes, I definitely love writing and the writing process, and uh, I just yeah, I love it. It shows, I think, as well. I mean, I've not read as much as Lisa, but, you know, she's telling me most days, oh, you want to read this bit here, Alex? He's a lovely writer. He's a lovely writer. So, a student, Tessie, that's what we want to know. I'm sorry? Was he a good student? He was not in my class. So the, the writing class that he's talking about was one that was offered before mine. Uh, and my class was a little bit different. It was a journaling class. Right. He was not in my original um, class. I think he missed the sign-up date or something. So I met with the guys for several months. And for my very last um, 
class, I had someone else who had been in my class come up and say, hey, I have this friend, George, he wants to join the class. Do you think that'd be okay? And I said, absolutely. You know, he can sign up. He's welcome to join. Um, but the very, before he was able to come to the class, I wrote a, uh, a letter and published it in the local newspaper about what I was doing and teaching. Yeah. And out of the prison. So I read like, that. Yeah, George and I have actually never met. Basically. Wow. Yeah, he's the only one that my other co-authors were all in the class. I, I got a lot of face-to-face -face interaction with them, but I've never met him. Oh, she's lovely, George. <laughs> <laughs> we have 60 seconds remaining. Before we go, George, I've got to say it's been so lovely speaking to you and honestly, we're really, really grateful for you sharing your story with us. Um, I just want you to know that your story will and is inspiring people. You know, you are making a difference and I don't know whether you realise that, you know, where you are, but it is inspiring and, you know, if you can do this and you can get sober and you know do the things that you're doing from where you are you know it is going to give people hope it is going to inspire them and I think everything that you've wrought um is just fantastic and I just want to say thank you for that and thank you for your time today thank you for the opportunity and I appreciate the encouragement because uh, I do need to hear it because uh, oh. uh, it can be hard and it is a struggle but um, I really do believe uh, the Bible. I do believe in the power of God. And for a long time, I've wrestled with doubt. But when I see God working around me, especially in these little mundane, seemingly mundane or invisible moments, but to me, I know how the ways of the world operate. And, I, and I've done it so many times that I know how things ought to go. But then every time I step out in faith and do what God says, like I said, it introduces this egg factor into the situation and something miraculous happens. Uh, so I just, you know, I want other people to experience that too. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through, but if you really believe God and you do what he says, God always keeps his promises. Always. Oh, you we honestly, it's, I'm speechless by it, and that's not often that happens to me, George. I'll have you know, I talk. It's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, honestly, I know you said the word you felt hopeless and, and I just want to add to what Lisa's just said, that your story, you know, through the book, through things like these interviews, it does show that under whatever circumstances, you can be the person you want to be and that God wants you to be if that's what you believe in. And I just think you're incredible. Thank you so much for taking time to share your story and being so open and honest with us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, a privilege uh, for you to give me this opportunity to just witness uh, to what God has done. Thank you. I can't wait to get this podcast out and I can't wait for people to listen to it. And I think what people will be shocked at more than anything, and I said this before, is how much they will actually relate to your story. You know, we kind of put ourselves on the outside as a them and us, and that that is not the case. And I think talking to you shows that. Um, oh, it's made me a bit emotional. <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> it has, it has. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Thanks again, George. And 
thank you as well, Tessie. Thanks so much for putting us in touch and for giving us the opportunity to speak with George. Thank you. And yourself. You're Lovely speaking to you both. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye, George. See you later, George. Bye. 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 Bye.